Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com. Do not suppose I will come to bring peace, but not a sword. What is the most important quality for a revolutionary to possess? El amor. Love. Love. Love of humanity. Love of truth and justice. Love of the Father. A real revolutionary will die for love. All right, what's up, everybody? I want to welcome you to our series, Revolution. And uh, I'm Pastor Tim. If this is your first time with us, here's the deal. Um, you've chosen a doozy of a day uh, to join us at this moment as we're looking at the revolutionary message of Jesus Christ. Because uh, growing up, I was taught there were three things you never discussed in polite company. Uh, sex, politics, and religion. The thing was, if you want to you know, make friends and avoid like rocking anyone's boats or anything, you don't talk about sex, religion, or politics. And today we're talking about the last two of those three. Now, you're in a church, so you might expect there's some discussion of religion, but today we touch a third rail with a look at the politics of Jesus. And this is significant, because what were the politics of Jesus? Was he, in fact, political? Um, now, here's the deal. We're on the East Coast. We're about 30 minutes outside of New York City. You know that. So it means different things to different people. In other words, most folks in Manhattan, or even in the suburbs of New Jersey, skew maybe a little bit more moderate to liberal. New York, New Jersey kind of typically are Democratic states in most elections. And yet, interestingly enough, we have a, a new Republican governor who's campaigned as a fiscal and uh, social conservative. New York City has a Republican mayor. He champions kind of you know, big business, law and order. So we have a diversity of political views in our population. And my guess is that will automatically impact how you view Jesus. Um, was he conservative or was he liberal? How would you respond to that? Now, this is probably going to tweak you a little bit, but we came across these pictures on the internet. I don't know if, I can, if you can see these. Um, take a look at the Republican Jesus here on the, appropriately on the right. He's holding a machine gun. He's got the capitalist pin there with a dollar sign. You see the oil rigs in the background kind of suggesting Jesus would support, like, you know, a just war, free markets, capitalism, limited government. And then you have the iconic Obamaized version of Jesus. Uh, in his last election, Democrats said, oh, that represents change, right? Expanded government programs for the poor and disadvantaged, health care reform, yada, yada, yada. Interesting contrast, because we have been noting that all throughout history, really, people hijack Jesus for all sorts of political and religious reasons. Jesus has been used to champion everything from communism to capitalism, from pacifism to war. And what we're acknowledging is the universal human tendency is to adopt Jesus to advance our agenda, rather than submit our lives to his revolutionary one. So today, we're going to look at what the Bible says about the politics of Jesus. But based on what you know, how would you, how would you say, you know, Jesus skewed? Was he more liberal? I mean, did the, the guy did say a lot about the poor. Maybe he was a socialist. <laughs> or is he a social conservative? You know, he kind of emphasized the, the role of God over the rule of man. Well, to find out, we hit the streets once again. And this time we went to the state campus of Rutgers University to see how the next generation views the politics of Jesus.
Hey folks, this is Tom here, and I am standing on the center of Rutgers University, home of the Scarlet Knights. And today we've got an important question, and that is, we're talking about the politics of Jesus. Was Jesus conservative, or was he liberal? Let's find out. Do you think Jesus was conservative or liberal? I'm going to go with liberal. Um, conservative? I guess liberal. Conservative. Thanks. Ooh, touched me. Uh, I just prefer that image. It seems uh, like a better image right there. It, it's it's a little Obama-esque, isn't it? A little bit. Okay. But I'm not saying that Obama is Jesus or anything. I, I think he was more like that. He, he was he was liberal. Was Jesus conservative or was he liberal? Liberal. He seemed uh, very against the grain, very uh, almost like socialist. Jesus is kind of like a socialist. Jesus was a socialist. Well. <laughs> You have to go with liberal, I guess. He's uh, he's pretty liberal. I mean, like, he's liberal in one way. Thou shalt not kill. You can't kill people. He's conservative in the other way with respect to religion that you have to uphold true, like, morality and, like, keep the status quo, that kind of thing. I'm going to go with liberal. Jesus was liberal. Yeah. Liberal. 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 That's liberal. I'm hearing three out of four here are saying liberal. Conservative. Get out. <laughs> Get out now. He was liberal. Liberal. Why is that? He has his own points of view, he didn't listen to anybody else. I think he was liberal. I think we all got a little conservative in this, but mostly I think it, what Jesus was talking about was liberal because his message was based on love. If you think about God and his, and his, and his motives for um, creating man, it was because of love. What do you think would solve the problems of today better? Government or Jesus? You know, I think really solving the problems, we have to like look at this line right here down the middle and do something with that. Jesus has his own purposes for like people who believe in Jesus, but um, for me, I think the government will do much more. I, I really have no idea what, what Jesus would do if he was in charge today. So you, you, you look to government for the answers more than you would to Jesus? I mean, I'm not saying like I I'm, you know, worship the government or anything. Which do you think would solve today's questions better, uh, government or Jesus? Well, I mean, they could both do it in their own way. I don't know, I think people should look to Jesus. Jesus. Okay, so everyone here is saying government, you're saying Jesus. You just happen to be a contrarian, is, is that right? Probably. I mean, you're wearing a Mets shirt, you must be a contrarian. Uh, <laughs> probably government. There would be more productiveness. Jesus was kind of an unproductive guy. Well, Jesus, because he has, like, the power of God and stuff. If he's everything he's cracked up to be. Big Jesus. Look at what we're going through in Jersey with the government. Government sucks. Government sucks. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? That's how you know you're in New Jersey, right? Uh, interesting stuff, I have to admit, talking with Pastor Tom is a little alarming to see how much little people specifically knew about the actual life and teachings of Jesus. Most students had kind of a vague general idea that Jesus talked about, you know, love and forgiveness and God stuff. But the lack of exposure to the factual teaching and, and the revolutionary life in Scripture was very startling. And so what we're going to do today is we are literally going to go directly to the source. I want to invite you to take out your Bible. It's going to challenge your political views and assumptions as we see what Jesus says about himself. And I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Um, Mark is an ancient Greco-Roman biography of Jesus. It's written between about AD 55 and 66, which puts us in the first generation of Jesus' ministry on earth. And this is a remarkable encounter because the leadership of two religious and political parties approached Jesus with a question about a hot-button issue of the day, and that is taxes. 
and it's like, oh, my, how things change, you know? Are you for taxes or are you against it? I'm so glad we're past that controversy, right? As you're going to see, what they're going to do here is they're going to raise this question as a way of trying to find out what Jesus' politics are. They're trying to smoke him out with a wedge issue and finally determine once and for all, Jesus, what are your politics? Let's read this together and then we'll break it down. Mark 12, start at verse 13. It says this, it says, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to what? To catch him in his words. Interesting. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. And they were amazed at him. Now, to understand what's going on here, you've got to understand a little bit about the political landscape of Jesus' time. This is the first century, and the Jewish people had been occupied by foreign powers since like for centuries. Like 586 B.C., a whole slew of empires had ruled across them. And if you're taking notes, you can just jot this down, but they had you know, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, and now the Empire of Rome was occupying Jewish territory, and it was the final straw because the Jews felt about the Romans probably the way that like Palestinians generally view the Israelis today, hatred resentment. They want to be free to live in their own land without outside interference. What's more, the emperor of Rome, do you know his name? He's called Caesar Augustus. He was a huge sore spot for the Jewish people because Caesar declared himself a god. He said, I'm a son of God, the smallest son of God. I'll talk about this. And check this out. This is incredible. Whenever Rome would conquer a nation of people, they would send out messengers, or they were called heralds, to give the good news of Rome's military victory. And that good news was called the gospel. You thought that was a churchy word. No, it was actually a political word. Caesar would send out, here is the gospel of Caesar, the good news of Rome's military victory. So around AD 14, when Caesar ruled, he articulated his gospel, his good news. Check out this inscription. This was found in Lycia by archaeologists. It says, Divine Augustus Caesar, what do you call him? Son of God, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world, has brought you peace. That's what they would announce whenever Rome would come in, kick some butt and say, we're taking over. And take a look at how loaded the language is here, right? I mean, Caesar was literally called the son of God. And that, the reason he was called that is because Caesar, he was always, the Caesar was the, uh, was the son of the previous Caesar. So he was the, the son of the previous divine ruler. He was considered divine, the savior of the whole world. He brought peace, the Pax Romana. He was the prince of peace. Whoa, wait a minute. Something's going on here. Funky with the language. These are political words. And you'll notice they're loaded with deep religious overtones. Caesar was one of the first political leaders ever to join church and state at the hip. And this was deeply troubling to Jewish people because this was felt deeply wrong. <laughs> that a military nation with a pagan emperor would rule over a people who believed in the one true and living God of the Bible. Caesar's kingdom, his, his empire, was brutal. It was universally loathed by Jews. And the burning question of their day was, how can we be set free from the rule of Rome? from this, this, this brutal Lord and Savior known as Caesar? And that question 
elicited various answers from the political and religious parties of the day. They ran the spectrum like they do today from left to right, liberal to conservative. If you're drawing, I'm using two pens. We're going to use red, surprise, surprise, for conservatives. And on the far right were the Zealots, a party known as the Zealots. And basically they, had, they said, it's very easy. You know how we can get free of Rome? We need to rise up and rebel. Let's slit a few Roman throats. Let's do this thing, man. We've got to st- we can't be cowardly or passive. We've got to attack uh, Caesar. And, and, and you know, they, they literally were like kind of red meat, you know, attack like machine gun Jesus. On the left, the other party, on the opposite end of the spectrum, was a group known as the Herodians. And you see the King Herod's name on there. And basically, these were totally liberal because they said, you don't understand how powerful Rome is. He will crush you. We need to negotiate. Do you remember in Braveheart when the nobles go out to war? We must negotiate. We must compromise. Because Caesar will crush you with his fist. You've got to play the game his way. That's the spectrum. So if the zealots were red state conservatives, the Herodians were blue-blood liberals. They're sellouts to the pagan culture of Rome, opposite ends of the political spectrum. Now, somewhere in the middle is a group called the Essenes, and I'm going to draw them in blue because basically their whole idea of, of revolution was the whole system's corrupt. We've got to hit the desert and start a hippie commune. They said flee. <laughs> I kid you not. They actually fled to the desert, started wilderness camps, and said we're dropping out of this whole corrupt system. We can't, we can't you know, deal with this. Now, the fourth group was called the Pharisees. We looked at them last week, and you know where are they? Right here. They are very conservative, but they said the spiritual, the spiritual issue or the political issue, it's a spiritual issue. And if we would just get a little bit more religion, in fact, if we could practice it in a much purer way, you know what the problem is with the world? It's the prostitutes, the drunks, the tax collectors. They conspire with Rome. And if we could get them to follow the Bible, then we would really have reform of this whole thing. So, Take a look at this, okay? These are the four main groups of Jesus' day who offered their own unique answer to this question, how can we be set free from the rule of Rome? And they ran the gamut, liberal to conservative, right? Constantly jockeying for political power and influence against each other. It's against this backdrop that a carpenter's son named Jesus begins preaching. And his message was simple but revolutionary. He didn't use the word revolt, but rather he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And now you notice that phrase, kingdom of heaven, has political overtones. In fact, kingdom of God is a direct contrast to the empire of Caesar. There's a kingdom of Caesar, there's a kingdom of God. It's political language. And even Jesus was really saying, he's basically saying, you know what, guys? I have some good news, a new gospel, but it's not from Rome. It's from heaven itself. And the news is this. You're all preoccupied with Caesar and the political kingdom of Israel, but you're missing the point. The kingdom of God is here now in a way you can't see yet. So I want you to repent and think again. Remember this means to do a 180. You all think that change is going to come from this, but until you think in a new way, nothing will change. And people sense this was a different message, right? But they weren't sure exactly where Jesus fit on the political spectrum. In some ways, he sounded like a zealot. They're, they're like, kingdom of God, it sounds like he's advocating you know, overthrow of Rome, but then all of a sudden you go here and preach in person. And he's standing on a hilltop, and, he, and he's talking to people, and he's saying, blessed are the peacemakers. <laughs> blessed are the meek. Love your enemies. And they're like, okay, he's not a zealot. Nope, that doesn't <laughs> X that out. Maybe he's a Herodian. Maybe he's liberal. But then it's like he talks about the kingdom of God, and that's totally a challenge to Caesar. Herodians would say, just, just bow to Caesar and sit down and be quiet. Just, you know, maybe, all right, maybe he's a Pharisee. 
And then you go to a party a few weeks later, and there he is socializing with the drunks and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And then when the party goes flat, what's he do? He makes more wine. He's not a Pharisee. That's not a... And so you begin Xing these off, and people are confused. Because at every level, Jesus seems to defy political labels and easy boxes. He's drawing very big crowds at this point, and people are like, this is different. He's not a hack politician. He's not a two-faced religious leader. He's calling for a new kind of revolution that doesn't fit any of my parties. And that's the debate that opens up here because they're like, clearly he has an agenda. He's political. But what's his platform? We're going to smoke him out. Now look at your Bibles. You're going to read this with exchange with fresh eyes. Look at it. It says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and the who? The Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And this verse alone is startling. Because these are two groups who never spoke to one another. They hated each other's guts. They literally at the opposite ends of the political spectrum. And yet they both find the message of Jesus so threatening that they teamed up to what? To catch him in his words. You know you have a revolutionary message when both liberals and conservatives agree, we got to tag team this guy and join forces. Off the top rope. You hit him, I'll knee him. I love this. They joined for, literally, people have been like, are you kidding me? They got together? And when they approach Jesus, they're so political. Notice they start with a compliment. That's how politicians do it before they knife you in the back. Look, verse 14. They came to him and they said, teacher, we know you are a man of what? Of integrity. They're like, we, we, we see there's something different about your character. You're a man of integrity. What that, what that literally, integrity literally means your life is integrated. You, you don't act one way around one group of constituents and then differently around another. That's what... People mean when they say he's political. Oh, he'll do anything like, you know, to get power or get elected or, or bump his approval ratings with the public. And he say, no, no, Jesus, you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. In other words, you're not after the popular vote, are you, Jesus? Because what you say and what you do seems to offend everybody. <laughs> the hallmark of politics hasn't changed in 2,000 years. You guys know this. The mark of a good politician is that you're willing to say whatever is necessary to accrue power and influence, and then you do whatever is necessary to hold on to it at all costs. That's why people hate politics, because it's about power plays. I have a friend who's a teacher, and she was complaining to me about, uh, about her school district. She said, it's so, she goes, I can't change anything in my school district. It's too political. Have you heard that? And you got what she means. She means everybody was concerned about their own survival. A system that started out about serving people. It's supposed to serve the kids, right? Becomes about preserving power or a seat on the board of the council and you have to say the right thing so you don't upset the status quo or offend those who have the, you know, the money or the power because they're the decision makers. The Herodians and the Pharisees say, Jesus, you don't play that game. We see you pay no attention to who people are, their positions or their office. On the one hand, you talk about kingdom of God, which upsets the left because it's a challenge to Caesar. And on the other hand... You break the law all the time. You break the Sabbath. You break the, he the healing. All that stuff we talked about last week. There goes the religious conservatives. You offend everyone. <laughs> so they're drilling down to find out, where do you stand, Jesus? Are you liberal or are you conservative? And they give them a litmus test in verse 14. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Again, so much has changed in 2,000 years, hasn't it? April is tax month. How many of you did your taxes? <laughs> I did not intentionally actually time this. Someone was like, oh, great choice. I was like, I didn't time this. Everybody hates taxes, but Jews especially hated to pay it because it wasn't a tax like on goods or services. It was called a head tax. In other words, you had to pay an annual tax just for the privilege of being a subject of Rome. 
A lot of the head money actually went to maintain pagan temples and the lifestyles of Rome's upper class. Again, so glad things have changed. So this is like a political hot potato. They're like, okay, let's see what he does with this one. Major sore spot, and they're like, let's nail him once and for all. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And this is the perfect trap. Because either a yes or no means trouble for Jesus. If Jesus answers yes, it means one thing. He supported Rome, and that would turn all the people against him. They'd say, Haha, yeah, we knew it. For all his talk about the kingdom of God and peace and helping the poor and all that, it's a bunch of smoke. He's just like the Pharisees. His message is all lip service, but has no impact in the real world of oppression, poverty, hunger, and injustice. Yes means Jesus is a lackey for Rome. <laughs> he claims to be the son of God. <clears throat> he really bows to the son of God in Rome. <laughs> we get it. On the other hand, if Jesus says no, he will be immediately accused of treason. He will be advocating insurrection against the military machine of Rome. And the zealots would like this, but Caesar would send the troops and crush him and his disciples. In other words, it's the perfect wedge issue. <laughs> it's a litmus test, and they want a black and white answer. So should we pay Jesus or shouldn't we? Yes or no? They want a soundbite they can play on Fox News. He said yes, we knew it. He's a liberal who likes big government. Or on MSNBC, he said no, he must be a right-wing tea party or he's the head of a militia. I know, I don't. And this is what I love about Jesus. Because his answer, it's not just subversive, it's brilliant. Look at this. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now a denarius was a silver coin. If you have a quarter in your pocket, you could take one out. It's about this size. We've got the picture of George Washington on, but this had Caesar on. It was worth about a day's wage for a blue-collar laborer, okay, which is about a quarter in our context. And it says, they brought the coin, and he asked them, whose portrait is it, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, this is funny that it says they, found Je they were amazed at him. This is, a, this is humor on Mark's part. He's trying, he's like, hey, they were amazed at this. How many times do you listen to a politician and say, that's an amazing answer? Most successful politicians are trained in the art of giving non-answers. Have you ever seen this? When they interview them, so what's your position on health care, sir? Should we pay or not for the uninsured? Uh, well, I'd like to first off start off saying, I think every American should be healthy. Uh, part of our pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, so I am definitely pro-health all the way. What? Politician answers are frustrating because they never give a straight answer and tell you where they stand. And at first glance, Jesus seems to like kind of sidestep this issue of taxes, but if you look at what he does, the answer is even more revolutionary. First off, notice he says, bring me a denarius, which is funny because what that simply means is Jesus didn't even have a quarter in his pocket. So right away, this is a contrast to Caesar. The coin is literally Caesar's. It was minted in Rome out of the emperor's wealth, in Rome, by Rome. And here comes Jesus, and he's like, I'm a rival king. I'm setting up a new kind of kingdom. It's an amazing kingdom, and I don't even have a quarter to my name. <laughs> the opposite of money, might, and power, Jesus is born into straw poverty. He spends all of his time with the poor, the people on the fringe of society. He said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So his first point is an object lesson. He's like, let me see the currency of your kingdom. He says, whose portrait or image on this? Now, here's the deal. The Greek word for portrait or image is icon. Can we all say this word together? Icon. This is where we get our English word, icon. <laughs> Can we say icon? 
Icon, yeah, you know, it's like a little, a little symbol of something like kind of bigger. And he's like, whose icon is on this thing? And he's like, obviously it's Caesar. He's like, okay, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. In other words, every Jew would have known exactly, this would have rang all sorts of bells. Icon, something made in the image of something else. If a coin is made in the image of Caesar, what's made in the image of God? You, me, humanity. Every Jew would have understood the currency he's referring to. Because in the first book of the Bible, the Torah, Genesis, it said in the image, in the icon of God, he created them, male and female. They were made in his icon. In other words, Jesus liked the coin. That belongs to Caesar. But who do you belong to? And they were amazed. He's like, you're an icon. And God has stamped his image on you, and you're made in his likeness. So you can give this to Caesar, but God wants that. You see the brilliance of this? Jesus is saying, you can give a tyrant your money, but don't give him yourself. It doesn't matter what system you find yourself living in. No matter how corrupt and violent and oppressive the regime is, the kingdom of God is greater than all of it. It transcends it. Why? Because the kingdom of God is within you. Luke 17 says, once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God doesn't come with your careful observation nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God, let's read this together, is within you. In other words, the kingdom is internal rather than external. It's not out here through some political platform that you get voted in and hold on to power. It's a revolution that starts inside the heart of every man and woman. True change doesn't come from the outside, from laws and legislation, but through radical love. This is a revolution from the inside out, not outside in, as we surrender control of our lives to a new king. Remember where we got our word? Kingdom. It's a realm where the king dominates. He's like, as you surrender rules to the king Jesus and he dominates your life, the kingdom of God has come. You will change, and so will the world around you. Isn't that a novel idea? If you want to change the world, how about this? Start with yourself. A revolution of one. Fueled by divine love, not political power at the heart of it. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but to God what's God's. He's saying that a king without a quarter or an army is greater than a king with a mint, with a mint in an empire. And he's challenging everyone. What's your allegiance? Don't ask me if I'm red or blue. Is your allegiance to one of the political parties? Is it to Caesar or is it to me who's above all of it? Why do you, Jesus is like, why are you asking if I'm conservative or liberal, if I'm red and blue? Dude, I'm neither. I am purple. I'm over this whole thing. Dude, I am the color of royalty. And this is a challenge to us. They were amazed, it says. Because no matter where you are on the political spectrum, Jesus' response has practical implications. One's personal, one is political. If you're political, uh, or if, if you're a follower of Jesus, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, think about this. Jesus is basically saying, first off, my followers will avoid the temptation to simplify complex issues like systemic poverty and oppression in our world. You guys know this. In American culture, politics is a zero-sum game. People demand a black and white, simplistic answer, and then they attach God to the agenda. Well, God would be for this. He would never be for that. God would vote for this candidate. He would never vote for him. We're taught to simplify issues and find the soundbite and demonize our enemies. And over the last two decades, Christians have taken the bait on that in a huge way, as if like true global change will come from more clever political organizing or yelling louder than the next guy. With his kingdom vision, Jesus defies that. He says, don't play politics and say I'm for something I'm not. In other words, don't do to me what I refuse to do to myself. 
He's like, I transcend the issues. But he wasn't evasive. Instead, he turned the lens on his listeners and he said, I want to make politics, which you think is just like this public thing about voting, I want to make it intensely personal. You can be an obedient citizen and pay your taxes, but I want to know, who do you really pledge allegiance to? Is it one of these systems, or are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? If so, great, but understand something. The currency of my kingdom isn't a matter of power plays or dollars and cents even. In other words, change your point of view. It's just the opposite. The currency of my kingdom is different. It's a revolution of love, of radical grace. You've got it backwards. My kingdom advances through peace and humility and sacrificial service to the least of these, the people who don't count. It doesn't operate on the principles of this world. See, Rome, Rome literally ruled with an iron fist. You've heard of that. The, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, it was enforced through brutality and violence and bloodshed. If you dissented against Caesar, you were crushed. You either did this. You either bowed the knee to Caesar and said, Caesar is Lord. That's how you pledged allegiance. Or you were crucified on a cross outside the city gates as a warning to anybody who didn't. You're getting the symbolism. Think about this. Here comes Jesus, and he claims to be divine. The Son of God, capital S, capital G, sent to be the Savior of the world and bring lasting peace. And what did he do? Instead of lording power over everyone, he literally leaves his throne in heaven and empties himself. And he's born into straw poverty. He spends his time serving the poor and the outcast and the most marginal in society, and instead of being elected, the culmination of being elected king, surprise, he's executed on Caesar's cross outside the city gate. Do you get this? That's the symbol of the kingdom. It's like, who wants to follow me? Who's in? The currency of man's kingdom is self-preservation. How do I hold on to power? It's like the currency of my kingdom is self-sacrifice. You give it all away. You give your life to love and serve others. So Jesus was saying, I have come to heal the broken and topple poverty and feed the hungry and judge injustice, but understand my way of transformation is utterly different. It's not about grasping for power, but giving it away, being willing to lose your life and serve the least of these. It's an upside-down kingdom. Change comes from within the life of every man and woman who is just crazy enough to follow my example. The revolution will be carried out by people like Lindsay, Lindsay is a public school teacher, and when she graduated from college with honors, my guess is she could have taught at any number of, you know, private schools or comfy suburban school districts, but instead, Lindsay chose a very different route when she came to New York City. She chose the way of the kingdom. This is her story. When I first moved to New York City, I thought I knew why I was coming here. It was going to be an adventure. I had my own agenda. I had no idea how much I would fall in love with the kids of the city and how much they would teach me about myself and change my life. I treasure my morning commutes on the subway. It's my time. Sometimes it's my only time with God. In those moments, I know his love for me, and I know that that's going to carry on throughout my day. And I know it's going to help me to do my job well. 
The Bronx is one of the toughest neighborhoods in the country. 75% of the people live below the poverty line. And where there's poverty, of course, there's going to be violence and sadness and strife, ugliness. Right in the middle of the Bronx is Middle School 223, where I'm a reading and writing teacher to sixth graders. It's where I spend my days every day. A lot of our kids at our school go home to shelters. They go home to homes where they are in charge. They see people get shot in front of their apartment door. Life has not been easy for them or kind to them. Morning. Good morning. Hey guys. Thanks for coming in quietly. Many of my students haven't been loved well. They've been abandoned. They've been promised things that have never come. They've been promised relationships with their fathers or mothers that have never happened. And so they're just worn. They're weathered and they don't trust love. On the first day of school, the first thing that I tell them is I've been thinking about you all summer. Like I love you already. You may not believe this, but you can't earn my love. You could make straight A's all year and have perfect behavior all year or you can get detention three times a week and I'm gonna love you the same and then I spend all year trying to prove it so I want you to think back to Monday we chose that one personal narrative that we're gonna publish and celebrate and put out there to the world who am I as a person what do I really want people to know about who I am? Well, it wasn't until recently that I realized that God had been preparing me for this job, for these kids at the school right now. I grew up in Georgia, mostly at my grandmother's house because my mom and dad were divorced. And then when my dad got married, I felt like I wasn't good enough. He, he wanted me to be perfect. I just wasn't good enough anymore. But I know I don't need other people to say I'm okay anymore. I did that my whole life, and I think I'm finally done. So maybe now I can just be Lindsay, and if I make mistakes, then oh well. I'm not only as good as what I do. Growing up, and especially now, even as an adult, I still long for that love and acceptance, and God has shown that to me. And given that to me so that I can go and give these kids the same love and acceptance that they have always wanted too. Over time, I really do believe this classroom becomes a safe haven for them, a place where they feel accepted and they know they're going to be safe and it's comfortable. I think God loves these kids so much, more than I could ever hope to love them. I think he wants them to rest and to be happy. I think he wants to heal their hearts. Every day they walk out of my classroom. And at the end of the year, they walk out of my classroom forever. It's so hard. It's hard not knowing what lies ahead for them or what type of choices they'll make and I just have to rest. I've done everything I could do. I've loved them the best that I can. 
And my hope is that they'll figure out that God loves them so much more than I ever could. Isn't that beautiful? That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. When a follower of Jesus looks at the way she's been radically loved and accepted by God through the sacrifice of Jesus, and it changes her on the inside, and as a response, she sacrifices her life and gives it away. And she spends it on the least of these who are first in line in the kingdom of God. Lindsay didn't just see the plight of the urban poor and say, well, we're going to wait for a political solution. We're going to wait for perfect economic equality. She said, I'm going to personally enter the mess and invest myself to transform the lives of these kids. And now the kingdom of God has come to the Bronx. Whoa, (laughs) that's incredible. That's a snapshot of the kingdom of God, and the revolution continues today. Are are Jesus' revolutionary words starting to make sense to you? Whoever finds his life will lose it. In other words, throw that verse up there. Whoever, whoever makes it about preserving their power in their life will actually lose and waste their whole life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever gives themselves and sacrifices themselves will have eternal life. They're living in the kingdom of God. Jesus' invitation was not to overthrow the system, but overthrow ourselves. You get this? So we can actually make an impact and break the cycle of oppression and domination and abuse and power and political struggles and actually bring some healing to a broken world until the king returns. See, in Christ's kingdom, politics are deeply personal, folks. Are you outraged by abortion? How about adopting an unwanted child? Are you upset that the city does nothing for the poor? How about taking a homeless person to lunch every Wednesday? A good example of revolution lived out would be the current movie, The Blind Side. Whoever you have, who has seen that? Anyone seen that? At first, right, Sandra Bullock, she's this upper you know, class lady who's scandalized because she meets this illiterate inner city kid who can't read. He's got no father, no support system at home. He's out living on the streets. But instead of criticizing the system or taking him to the city's homeless shelter, what does she do? She takes him into her house. Not only accepts him, but she actually adopts him as a member of the family. That's the revolution because that's what God did for us. What's most incredible is that 2,000 years later, Caesar is gone and Jesus' revolution lives on. Eventually, over time, Jesus' followers literally brought the Roman Empire to its knees as they began living out the kingdom ethic of love in everyday life. Whenever the early church, whenever they encountered injustice or oppression, they didn't respond with a violent rebellion, nor did they say, well, we just got to compromise with the culture. Instead, they responded with revolutionary love. Do you remember what Jesus said? He says, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He's like, politics, man, it's a bare-knuckle brawl business. But I tell you, love your enemies. Love your enemies? What kind of foreign policy strategy is that? It took time. For the early Christians, they learned when you're faced with injustice, you actually don't slit Roman throats like the zealots. If a soldier backhands you with a blow to the right cheek, you actually turn to him the left in sort of a, a counter-cultural spiritual judo move. Go, try this one. I will not strike you back. Grace. They made themselves vulnerable to beatings, tortures. They were hung on crosses. They were martyred in the Colosseum. And little by little, they unmasked Caesar for who he was, a tyrant driven by greed, bloodshed, and abuse of power. They confronted Caesar's fist with love because their master, their teacher, Jesus, taught them. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The law at that time actually said a Roman soldier had the legal right to force any Jew to carry their pack for a mile. 
This was actually a restrictive law because most Roman soldiers would make him walk 20, 30 miles with all these pad equipment. They're like, you can make him go one mile, then you've got to find another Jew and make him carry it. They were slaves to the system. Jesus is like, that's oppressive, okay, on a number of levels, but what if? What if when you carry their gear one mile, at the end of that, instead of dropping it and cursing your enemy as an ordinary radical of the kingdom of God, you said, you know what, I'd, I'd like to keep carrying this for you. What? In other words, the first mile is slavery, the second mile is freedom. You're following me. This is where we get the phrase, go the extra mile. And now you're choosing your freedom to serve instead of strike back. What would the effect be on your oppressor? You're carrying a pack for a Roman soldier who people throw rocks at him and spit on him as he walks by, and you're walking a second mile, and now why, why are you doing this? Well, you know, I, I, I'm, a follow, I'm a follower of uh, you know, Jesus Christ. Didn't we crucify him outside the city gates? Yeah, 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 but he told me to love you. What? Enough people responding with radical grace instead of power plays, literally the kingdom brings down an empire. You give God room to work a miracle to conquer your enemy with kindness, and you bring down an entire system from within. Now, this doesn't happen overnight, but enough people like Lindsay, enough people giving their lives, serving with sacrificial love, that kingdom, that kingdom can't be stopped. And it wasn't. Probably the most dramatic convert to the kingdom revolution was the Apostle Paul, who was both a Pharisee and a Roman citizen. He had no problem using violence to make people conform to his platform. And as a subject of Rome, he would have been familiar with the Pledge of Allegiance that every Roman citizen had to say, Caesar ho curius. You know what that means? Caesar is Lord. And then he met Jesus. And when Jesus brought him to his knees, Paul was transformed by the power of the cross. And suddenly, he started giving his life to serving Gentiles and Jews and Romans, anyone who would listen to the message of the kingdom. And in his letter to the Philippians, Paul made a prediction. He said this, listen to me. One day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that who? Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you catch his subversive language? What is the gospel? What is the good news? That Caesar is Lord? No. That Christ alone is Savior. He is Lord. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Son of God, here to give his life for this broken world. And one day, mark it. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of all. As you pledge allegiance and allow his rule and his reign to dominate, as the king dominates your heart, that's how the kingdom will come. To the Bronx, to New Jersey, to Australia, to the end of the world. How does that happen? One life at a time. With people like Lindsay who live out the revolution every day. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but you give to God what is God's. You are stamped in his image. You are his icon. And the king says, until I return, help me bring the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? If you're with me, stand up if you want to be part of the revolution. Stand with me, would you? Come on. I want to commission you and send you out. Father God, thank you so much. God, you didn't just bring another religion to crush people but to liberate them forever. You began with your son, Jesus Christ. He took the form of a servant. He was born into poverty, and he gave all his power away. God, this is hard for us. I, my hands just hold on to stuff, boy. Sometimes I watch Fox, CNN, MSNBC. I feel hopeless, and then I feel angry, and then I want to lash out. But God, you say, Tim, give your heart. 
give it all to me. And watch the power of God to change the hearts of men. God, we're praying for a revolution. Start it here. Start it with us, Lord. Let love just radical grace leak out of this church. I thank you for our name, Liquid. Thank you for our birthright. Let us be part of your kingdom. We can't wait until it comes on earth as it is in heaven. All God's people said together, amen. amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Audio. If this message has touched you, we'd love to know how. Just email Pastor Dave Adamson at churchonline at liquidchurch.com. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com.